This is the Epilog audio experience. If you look at the science of cancer, we today know nutrition has a pivotal role to play. Every time a new technology is introduced, will your efficiency reduce because you'll have to adapt to a new learning. And that's where learning and training will actually change a new paradigm in VR, XR, MR. Uh, micro learnings to actually help you teach faster so that you don't reduce your proficiency but improve patient delivery technology will uh, come closer to you faster than what you can Im- even imagine so we're not talking de- decades we're going to talk days weeks months i think in the coming de- in the coming uh, time hi my name is amara mahendra and i am the founder of kera india's first integrative oncology platform In this episode I am so excited to introduce you to a phenomenal surgical oncologist the head of surgical oncology HCG Hospitals Dr Vishal Rao Dr Vishal is extremely well recognized all over India and globally he's an innovator an inventor and a dear friend Every time I sit with Dr Vishal Rao I'm taken to a completely different orbit where we speak about incredible advancements in technology only to find out a couple of years later that he has brought it to life dr vishal speaks about augmented reality virtual reality and all the advancements in clinical treatment for cancer in this very first integrative oncology podcast being broadcasted all over india we speak about healing cancer the right way and bring you experts from all domains to tell you exactly what you can do to heal cancer prevent it and cure the disease enjoy hi dr vishal thank you so much for being here um it's such a pleasure to again meet with you and talk with you and i have a bunch of questions that i want to ask but first if you can start off a little bit about yourself i'm sure the country already knows but a quick introduction and then i'll jump into the questions thank you samara i'm uh, dr vishal rao i'm uh... a surgical oncologist uh, specializing in the field of head and neck i'm currently the group director for head and neck surgical oncology at hcg and i also wear an additional hat of being the dean of uh, academics for the center of academic research at hcg great thank you so much for being here dr vishal so i'm going to start off with prevention and screening um you obviously treat uh, predominantly head and neck cancer cases and a majority of that if not most or all all patients per se is uh you know it's it's affected by smoking chewing tobacco alcohol uh you know so on and so forth so how do we battle this problem that is kind of self inflicted uh it's not really related to genetics but it's completely lifestyle oriented uh, what can we do of course uh to bring these risks down and um those who are addicted to say chewing tobacco or even alcohol how do we curb this so samara i think the first thing to start with is i think globally if you look at it head and neck oncology division uh, need not exist it's man made and uh, it's one department where more than 90% of the contribution comes from a preventable cause and a significant contributor to non communicable diseases which is tobacco of late we've also seen the rise of infections causing cancer that is human papilloma virus which is suddenly on the rise 
leading to a small spike in the head and neck cancer especially in the tonsils i think which is uh, something that oflate uh, globally we are acknowledging that earlier we knew viruses caused the, uh, the cervical cancer the human papilloma virus now we today know it's also a causative agent for tonsillar cancers and oropharyngeal cancers uh, and that's something that we are again uh, looking at from a preventive point of view where there's a lot of scope for working towards the hpv uh, vaccines in the current point so dr vishal what uh, screening tools are there and measures that one can do because i can i can imagine it being quite frustrating for you as as well as a doctor because like you said majority of these cases are preventable so can you tell us a little bit about screening and prevention and also the fact that many of these patients who come in and who uh, you know are uh, result in a positive malignancy go through treatment and i know the treatment per se for head and neck is quite substantially difficult and and it's and it's very impactful on any patient but then they fall back into this lifestyle of smoking and uh, chewing tobacco uh, so what do we do how do we screen how do we prevent or how do we keep our risks low see the fundamental approaches in cancer prevention have been primary secondary or tertiary primary prevention prim- focuses more on the aspects of policy related to things like tobacco control control of alcohol looking at uh, vaccinations in cases of hpv and things like that which is the primary prevention the aspect of secondary prevention focuses on early detection because even today we know that the biggest armamentarium in our um, in our support systems continues to be the aspect that if you are able to pick up the cancer early you have won more than half the battle because as a general concept early cancers that is early stage cancers stage 1 and stage 2 require a one single modality treatment as a general rule and stage 3 and 4 cancers require multi modalities and have higher recurrences and greater failures so the earlier you pick it up the effort has been to look at trying to improve outcomes by picking it up early rather than spending more after detecting it late and having poorer outcomes True. so logically now in the era of technology a lot of drive is being given towards can we pick up the cancer at stage 0 mm-hmm. which is pre malignant stage mm-hmm. and that's something that i think a lot of technology experts across globally are looking at from various scientific point of view of raman spectroscopy or various other technologies to look at visual aids like we've got now narrow band imaging contact endoscopy many such technologies that have come that helps you pick up these cancers at stage 0 pre malignant stage right. now this is a very important tool but can be misused for example in thyroid cancers globally data shows that unnecessary screening can be harmful okay and this this is something that people should understand that when we talk about screening uh there are certain cancers in which screening helps and in certain cancers where screening does not help so this has a lot of connotation for a general public to understand that for example if i'm talking about oral cancers in oral cancers what studies across the world with publications from places like lancet and others and cochrane and else have shown that in oral cancer which is an aggressive cancer early detection can be a magical tool 
but if you use it population wide the impact of that population wide intervention may not be anything great however if you refine your strategies towards high risk population that is towards people who consume tobacco and alcohol that would make the strategy of prevention and early detection the secondary prevention much more viable and much more logical because you are actually getting a better outcome by screening the high risk population okay in the same way in places like thyroid or for example prostate cancers there has been a debate about talking about if you try to do an unnecessary screening you are increasing the cost of healthcare increasing the number of interventions but the outcome has not changed so just to kind of give the right. uh, uh, audience a perspective i'm giving you an example um uh, there was a debate that happened um uh, you know uh, in one of the political uh, forums where one of the senior uh, political uh, runners for a campaign made an announcement that thank god that i'm getting treated in this country because of which my outcomes are at 80% compared to the other country where the outcomes are were only 60% for a particular cancer now when he made this statement the lot of the scientific world uh, considered that statement to be wrong because the way they pick up this particular cancer in his country was through a blood test whereas the way they pick up the cancer in the other country was through symptoms so the approach was two different things okay so it's like me telling you that imagine if um, uh let's say i get, i'm developing the tumor the tumor started to develop in my body at the age of 55 and i get detected at the age of 60 because of symptoms and i die at 70 so i've lived a total of from the time of the tumor starting 15 years whereas if i use the blood test and if i pick up this person at much early stage let's say at 56 but he still dies at 70 then what i've done is this is called as a lead time bias i have picked up the cancer much earlier but the outcome has not really changed he still dies at 70 however statistically i am adding about 4 years additionally to his life which is what i'm saying that it is he is living for 14 years this happens in low grade cancers so the the fundamental principles of screening should be used very diligently used indiscriminately it can cause harm and not benefit and can create more panic can create more fear however we have to draw the, the thin red line of of science to keep walking this path to say that that does not mean to say that we'll forego and say screening is useless screening is absolutely important and is a very powerful tool when used diligently and can help us plan and utilize our resources much better and give better outcomes and be more cost effective that's so interesting i never actually uh, viewed it that way at all i just thought like mass screening early detection that's the answer and um wow okay i never i never really thought about it that way but that's such an interesting point um, dr vishal do you see that you know with families or uh, you know you you're treating patients who um have got a malignancy because they are heavy smokers or they chew tobacco do you see this translating to other members of the family are they also at high risk so you know samara this is a very uh, relevant question uh, often people ask me this 
I tell them in a very categorical note that cancer is a genetic disease beyond a doubt. However, it is not a hereditary disease. There is a difference between a disease being genetic versus hereditary. Beyond the point we have proven that cancer is a genetic disease. However, only 5% of these genetic cancers are hereditary. That means that through my life, through what I eat, through what I breathe, through the way I live, through my lifestyles, I acquire certain somatic mutations or genetic changes in my body, which are acquired through my lifetime. And that leads to a potential somatic mutation, which can lead to cancer. That necessarily need not be transferred to the next progeny because my genetic correction mechanisms and the DNA repair mechanisms are very good and that's why it doesn't get transferred. So most of the cancers today fall in that category that they are genetic but not hereditary. And so people should understand the difference between a genetic disease versus a hereditary disease. But when you're in an environment or in a family where, um, you know, you have members of the family indulging in these various, uh, um, you know, uh, various ways of actually increasing their risk, like smokers, uh, it translates into other members being encouraged to do it. So do you see that at all in when you treat patients that, uh, and I meant in terms of just the whole environment that they are living in, uh, is there any kind of uh, translation that happens over there? I think beyond a doubt, we know, for example, tobacco is a carcinogen, which has about 6,000 to 7,000 chemicals of which 60 to 70 have known to be carcinogenic. Nickel, arsenic, chromium, cadmium, radioactive plutonium, benzopyrenes, formaldehydes, I can go on naming them. There are so many chemicals. Now, when a person consumes these, it has been told that the passive smoking is more dangerous than active smoking. Why? Because when a person consumes cigarette, there is a filter attached to the uh, to the edge of the cigarette with which he inhales the smoke. Whereas the other end of the cigarette is an open-ended one where the direct uh, combustion of the tobacco is happening without filter of any of these chemicals. So the passive smoker somewhere inhales both the active and the unfiltered smoke. And the other passive smoke which is being exhaled by the person's lungs. So today in a closed environment, people are talking about not just second hand smoking, they're talking about third hand smoking. That means in that area of the restaurant, hotel or your homes, the smoke and the carcinogens that are there could actually be sitting on your clothing, on the upholstery or on the food items and could be there for a very, very long time and could equally be harmful. So beyond a doubt today, we know that that secondhand smoking and passive smoking has is a high risk factor, a risk factor for various diseases. My gosh. Okay. And, and I have to ask you this, Dr. Vishal, because I know you work with, uh, you know, you'll work with multiple state governments as well as, um, you know, reputed international uh, forums and regu- uh, you know regulatory bodies. We all know smoking is bad for us. Uh, I think on a government level, they have put pictures on cigarette packets and so on and so forth and done whatever they can. But do you feel like you're fighting an uphill battle when you're trying to educate uh, or in, you know 
bring some knowledge to the general population of the fact that this leads to cancer because it's all known but is there really a change that's happening because of the education or how do you fight this battle so i think the fundamental battle has been with regarding to pro health and not anti tobacco while tobacco is a very uh, systematic industry that i think has evolved over over decades and centuries and been a part of culture and tradition the actual game is on the nicotine business not of the tobacco business now if you understand this and if you understand the business statistics of uh, uh, and the tactics of the tobacco industry india i am giving you an average we lose about 10000 10 lakh people or 1 million people to tobacco each year in this country because of cancer lung diseases heart diseases now putting these together and uh, every state government spending about 1000 crores uh, or nearly 1000 crores per year on these diseases three diseases prevention seems to be a logical answer however the nicotine business runs in a very systematic way because we know that the industry runs the nicotine business and not the tobacco business mm. and in this way nicotine is the most powerful addictive substance known to humankind it is more powerful than heroin and cocaine in fact 90% of the drug addicts begin with tobacco mm. so it is also a gateway to drugs and tobacco is a very potent addictive agent and that's why the tobacco industry's formula is that every year i mean i'm talking if you are a businessman and i lose 10 lakh customers each year i need to get back 10 lakh customers each year logically if i have to continue my business correct now how do i get that at my age group or at your age group i don't think we are in a position to start a new habit because our brain has already adapted itself to certain neurons and you know how difficult it is to change the way we live today or the way we eat today it's so difficult starting a new habit becomes very complex so the industry has always been targeting on the youth and they know the critical number that it is only at that critical age group between 10 to 18 that you are the most vulnerable and you will be able to start new habits and which is why the target of the industry has been to influence young minds for example you know i was watching a movie where the detective before he thinks and before he has to come up with a solution to solve the crime had to smoke a cigarette or the lady before she had to express the sexuality would take a cigarette and smoke this has positive affirmations and influences on the youth to adapt a particular habit and this kind of approaches would actually help you think that i can you know it increases the peer pressure on you to adopt a habit now what also the industry knows is if we give 100 people a cigarette to smoke or a tobacco product to smoke only 30 of them will be your long term consumers and that's why the the industry's uh, connoisseurs would work towards adding as many chemicals into this to improve the nicotine delivery mechanism by which you are able to maximize the the addictive power of nicotine for a long lasting period to get the person hooked to this habit so that it doesn't come out so on a lighter note i keep telling people that the will power is is lesser than will's power you know 
and uh, it's it's complicated it's not easy to come out of the nicotine habit to the to the paradoxical extent that um, uh, some of the world's top tobacco companies run their own de addiction program they are so confident that you can't come out of it oh my uh wow okay so what happens now when there is and this is going into you know treating uh, a malignancy and you're dealing with these cases on an everyday basis um i think to me and the country you are an innovator uh, you're always ahead of the curve in terms of medical advancements and treatment what are some of the things that you can talk about dr vishal that has been profound in the recent times uh, in terms of treatment of head and neck cancers um i think the most um, interesting and inspiring fact today would be that we have shifted our focus um uh, to a great extent in thinking where we earlier thought that stage 4 cancer was end life palliative to now talking about cures in them and remissions in them. i think that's the biggest shift that has happened and i'm i'm in, i'm i'm kind of Uh, drifted to to some of the old discussions uh, that i would do that you know judah fockman one of the earlier father of angiogenesis would often quote and say that that there would be a time in history when we will coexist when the cancer cell and the immune cells and the normal cells will coexist in a harmonious ecosystem without killing each other because today we've been talking more about fighting the cancer and not healing the cancer so i think there is going to be a shift in the coming decades towards how can we optimize and accelerate healing of the body by understanding the interplay between um, the cancer cell and the body's own immune cells and that would actually set the platform for talking about coexistence beyond cure and not just eliminating tumors through only the three artilleries that we use today surgery chemo radio and look beyond this particular approaches to adopt new strategies which has more participation from patients which is more um uh, having a more involving 360 approach from patients in a holistic manner that talks about activating the immune system along with controlling the cancer cells and that kind of an approach is what the world is heading towards in immunotherapy and i think the next 10 years will be for synthetic biology i myself been a part of several of these committees both in the state and the union government working towards synthetic biology and i believe when i i encourage my youngster colleagues to adopt the surgeon scientist program or the clinical scientist program because i believe that that is going to be the future that the next 10 years and you can maybe uh, replay this a decade later and tell me whether this was true that the surgeon's role will also be to spend time in the lab looking at genomics proteomics metabolomics uh, uh, multiomics and uh, microbiomics this is going to happen and that would be crucial because you would know more amount of the the genetic signatures of tumors and uh, what we are seeing evolve in today's paradigm is the future evolving in synthetic biology uh, seems to be rapidly accelerated where uh, for a common man what is synthetic biology today thousands of crores has been invested by the states and union governments in synthetic biology today because this is that aspect of science which teaches a cell 
a function it does not know to do or has forgotten to do so giving you a simple picture in hcg between my three towers i have one genomics lab i have a surgical wing i have a immunology lab so when i'm operating and taking out a tumor one piece of the tissue goes for the genetic analysis another piece of tissue goes for immunological analysis to the synthetic biology lab where the patient's few ml of blood in a petri dish inside a clean chamber you know which is as clean like your human body is asked to meet your tumor cells and they both are interacting with each other in a controlled environment and in this environment they both are actually getting trained where the immune cells are being trained to teach the immune cells on how to stop these cancer cells from growing because they somewhere inside the body were not able to learn it so an external training is provided through super antigens and uh, looking at um, non self antigen simulations where the cancer cells are outside the body teaching the normal immune cells on how to pick them up and then you take that small quantity of blood immune cells which have already learnt it and multiply them using plasmapheresis like a xerox machine into thousands and thousands of cells and reinfuse them into the patient's own blood <laughs> now i'm saying this is not sci-fi this is happening as we speak today this is not something that's going to happen tomorrow and this is what you mean by coexisting right so you're not necessarily going in there and destroying the Uh, cancer cells, but you are uh, enhancing the immune cells and then allowing the cancer cells to just kind of survive along and coexist. Is that what's happening? Absolutely. And today, if you hear, some time back there was this big buzz about this particular drug with from uh, yes. USA that made a thing that all of them got cured. What was it? What did that drug do actually? That drug actually was able to work on. specifically reprogramming the cell through engineering and activating the normal cells not killing the cancer cells and that is what immunotherapy is about to focus on activating this immune system and that's one aspect of synthetic biology and the second aspect that i would like to touch here is the the advent of big data with small data now the the small data is what i'm talking about is genetics Uh, genomics wherein one small tissue of one patient will be delivered for personalized medicine and the big data will give you more of um, uh, of precision medicine which will be able to tell you in a combination of how we are going to be able to target using big data ai system learning now you know there are four stages of ai we have reactive ai we have after that uh, the limited memory ai then we have theory of mind and self aware ai i remember one of my lectures that i was giving as a keynote address in 2019 end i was talking about um, the future of ai where i said reactive machines have already come in you know you're hearing about alexa siri and we are slowly moving in towards the driverless car and mind you this was in um, end of uh, 2019 just before the pandemic hit when elon musk is talking about driverless cars which have already entered the market two i was telling stephen hawking was worried about theory of mind and self aware ai now i'm saying just a couple of days back i have just read that one of the uh, engineers from google was able to reach uh, the self aware uh, the theory of mind uh, concept and able to show it so what i thought would happen 10 years later in my keynote talk when i was talking 
happened three years later. Wow. And of which two years was the pandemic. So I believe that the acceleration of technologies will be much faster and at such a rocket pace that it may be difficult for medical fraternity to adopt sometimes and it will be scary. So, uh, you know, there's a good debate to say that every time a new technology is introduced, will your efficiency reduce because you'll have to adopt to a new learning. And that's where learning and training will actually change a new paradigm in VR, XR, MR, uh, micro learnings to actually help you teach faster so that you don't reduce your proficiency but improve patient delivery uh, outcomes uh, in, a, in a comprehensive. Wow, Rakushan, I didn't know that. That's, that's so interesting. My gosh. So I'm going to, I'm going to go into a, a very interesting topic that you actually introduced me to, which is um, augmented reality, virtual reality for management of cancer symptoms of psychological uh, you know distresses of a cancer patient for pain management uh, i know you are deeply involved in this and uh, like i said you're a visionary in the this kind of space so would love to know where you are what you're doing and a little bit more about that you know this all started with one of my inventions on extended reality that i had actually created and uh, and patented and that's when i actually started working on understanding this because i realized that um, uh, in one of the uh, early uh, i would say uh, 2017 in mumbai we had a national conference on virtual reality where many people from across the world and i was one of the only few people in the healthcare domains who was talking there this is way earlier at that time and we were at that time talking about augmented reality. Mm. Now, the space of augmented reality, starting from virtual reality and now going to extended reality and mixed realities has been an evolving spectrum. If you ask me today, let's simplify this and say, let's not complicate the world to saying, oh, this is cool tech. I'm asking you today as a surgeon. I remember eight years back when I was when my chairman asked me saying take up robotic surgery i said i'm very happy i'm not I'm, i don't want to do this robotic surgery i don't want to learn it. two spending some time in training in in augmented reality in this particular area and feeling that i could actually learn this much faster and slowly moving towards the area of training and understanding and doing robotic surgeries one of the most simplest things that i understood was you know i sit in a room today or we, you take your room, for example, and if you take a, an image of this on our phone, the image looks better than that, that of the real thing. And that is what optics has done to us in terms of making an experience more real, more interactive. So it is instant, it is interactive also. And in this particular process of being instant, interactive, I think it kind of gives you a, a very comprehensive immersive feel. So you take the three eyes into this instant immersive and interactive. You actually are built into an ecosystem where you are able to experience the structures better. So in a simple way, I say in robotics, I have as a surgeon, small eyes and big hands, whereas the robot has small hands and big eyes. So it actually helps me go to places where I would normally not go. Right. And Augmented reality, mixed reality has been able to bridge this kind of a gap for us. 
to some time back we did some very nice programs with microsoft wherein with the hololens we were able to look at i would not say technically teleportation but something close to that experience like in star trek where i was able to go uh, to my surgeon uh, friend in my surgery just like what i'm sitting in front of you samara i was able to visit my friend in uh, in mysore and he was actually seeing my uh, my uh, 2d avatar or what you call my virtual presence sitting on the patient's right shoulder and watching to millimeter precision the entire surgery and talking interacting to him talking about specific steps exchanging notes on what are the areas of uh, concerns and and adopting and that is what technology has done to us i think the point here is technology is an assistive tool it is going to accelerate augment and accentuate human healing it is not a replacement for human hands but um, you know you cannot say that the the healing touch could be uh, replaced by haptics it cannot be but nonetheless it still can be an extended arm to assist you to treat the patients better and minimize errors how far do you think we are away from it becoming mainstream in treatment of cancer um we are already seeing its adoption increasing and we are building use cases for patients hospitals and doctors three separate verticals hospitals have already started creating their own meta avatars wherein you can come and tour the hospitals doctors have started using this for better treatment planning already in a more immersive environment and patients i i remember distinctly two patients one of them of my patient was in my ward who who was a, who was a senior executive in a company and while i was talking to him he sounded dull and i asked him what do you do for when you take a break and he told me he says i go to chopati and sit there and my uh, vr team augmented reality created a entire augmented reality spectrum with mixed reality options for this person as though he was sitting in chopati for that 5 minutes i could see the joy in his face as though he had forgotten where he was in hcg bengaluru and transported himself to chopati sitting in the shores listening to the waves and i thought well accomplished at minimal cost or a person who wanted to do bungee jumping and they created one from burj alarab for him and he jumping out of there and he's actually thinking that actually sitting in my ward he was experiencing a jump and feeling the exhilaration of thing which i thought releases endorphins and healing so i think somewhere in this path uh, technology will uh, come closer to you faster than what you can Im- even imagine so we are not talking de- decades we're going to talk days weeks months i think in the coming de- in the coming uh, time that's fantastic dr vishal i want to ask you about integrative therapies and also um now as you had mentioned the world is moving more to patient centricity uh, involving the patient in their cancer journey uh, educating them empowering them and also implementing various integrative therapies like personalized nutrition physical therapy psychological uh, guidance and help and uh, evaluation for patients who are going through treatment um they're calling nutrition the additional pillar of treating cancer today so can you tell me how important integrative therapies have been for your patient how important uh, from a scientific 
point of view how important does a role nutrition play in your patients responding to treatment treatment adherence and also quality of life i think globally it's a well acknowledged fact that you need to create a balance for iq eq and sq your intelligent quotient your emotional quotient and your spiritual quotient and i think that kind of summarizes the being the mind body and the soul now it is essential that while we take focus on a small aspect of the cancer cells be it 5% to 10% in a advanced stage cancer patient to 90% which is the good cells we never talk about this 90% we are all busy killing the the 5 to 10% and always the debate is around the 5 to 10% but somewhere there is an assumption that over 90% will handle them on their own wo apne aap mein sambhal lenge they'll manage on their own nobody has actually spoken about how do we take care of these 90 while we are dealing with the 10 and i think that's a lost conversation today which needs to be brought in and in this food is the new medicine i think i i would summarize and simply say that if you look at the science of cancer from 1929 when otto warburg got his nobel prize for saying sugar contributes to the growth in cancer we today know nutrition has a pivotal role to play and i would segregate diet from nutrition and say diet is one aspect of our element which is also connected with the satiety satisfaction center of the brain nutrition is an aspect which talks about how we can look at immune checkpoints to be dealt with using high protein high fiber balanced fats moderate uh, amount of uh, sugars or low sugars and vitamins minerals added with multiple colors in your plate to deliver the best nutritional value to enhance your immune system which is often forgotten in the busy schedule of killing eliminating and um, and uh, kind of uh, uh, treating the tumor so i think time has come back to bring it on to the table to talk about a holistic integrated approach a complete 360 approach where the patient centricity is going to be discussed in a much more holistic manner which includes his quality of life which caters to his palate which caters to all aspects of cancer not just the cancer cells itself sure um and dr vishal a question that you know i'm asking everyone because it's something that we all are battling in india and globally is uh first or let's just speak about india i mean there is a very large percentage of the population that um will indulge in alternative therapies i mean we've had this conversation before um and while you know ayurveda natural medicine is great in its own right um it can also be harmful in certain circumstances now how does a patient uh, um you know because they have this negative connotation towards treatment uh, what we have noticed is as soon as a patient is feeling better they drop out of treatment or there's low adherence on sticking to the treatment regimen and then they think that no i'll do some alternative medicine because it sounds natural and that will be better for me and this is something as a doctor you probably are facing on an everyday basis especially in a country like india how do you deal with that how do you deal with uh, um you know high risk of non adherence with your patients if there is and what can we do to you know change that perception for patients so i think samara we like you rightly said we've discussed this uh, diamond doesn't time before 
debating on all aspects of this and let's take a common ground of mutual respect to all specialities and say that if we were to take this on a common platform there would be two words one is integrated and the other is communication now when i say integrated we in somewhere need to adopt the approach that integrated medicine would look at bringing stakeholders on a common platform of science and uh, the aspect of communication i always encourage my patients not to hide these information from me because that has strong implications to my planning of his treatment and i think in this way what i encourage many of the times to patient is to connect me with their alternative uh, medicine practitioner or an ayush practitioner and have a good dialogue to tell them on their science because by legalities they are permitted to practice their science of course and by my legalities i am pra- allowed to practice my science both of the science do not give any specific indications to deter one from the other but here an informed decision is needed to be arrived at by the patient to make a more planned um, evolution of his outcomes so it is very essential for patients to get and engage the parties into a dialogue to come to a common point rather than keeping either sides in the dark hoping that he will benefit the maximum from this and i think that could be a good starting point to engage it and then also take a more calculated informed decision based on his own understanding of each of these sciences i have seen successes on both sides i have seen failures on both sides and i'm saying that today allopathy has reached this area because of a systematic evidence based approach and not an eminence based approach so empirical medicine eminence based medicine is not to be practiced in today's era of evidence based medicine i think that's something which is very clear across all sciences that we need to produce evidence and if somebody is able to show some evidence that it enhances the immune system it is a good food supplement it is a good nutritive addition or it is a good alternative medicine target i think that is a good conversation to initiate more amount of work many of the times the biggest molecules we've discovered in allopathy are actually founding it finding its roots in ayurveda and food is by itself a medicine so i think we are talking about two aspects which are the same which are two sides of the same coin but need to have better integration and communication i think it has to be a very strong marriage of allopathic treatment and alternative and actually keep it complementary right instead of it being two different schools of thought because it does not have to be that um so you're absolutely right i wanted to quickly ask you a little bit about data right and about um how important non clinical uh, aspects of data are becoming for um understanding uh you know or or improving patient outcomes so example is today we you know we are again moving into world of uh, technology and medical advancements and using technology to a large extent which we spoke about and which retrieves a lot of clinical data and medical data of a patient but what about the other aspects of data like behavioral sets of data uh, psychosocial sets of data uh, the ones the qualitative sets of data which where a patient tells you how they are feeling Uh, as opposed to you know just a quantitative measure uh, that is completely related to their medical condition 
what are your thoughts on that on the non clinical aspects and how that's actually making your decision as an oncologist to provide more precision uh, or, or precise medicine and treatment for your patients so samara i think both clinical and non clinical complement each other here and i strongly believe that today non clinical data is equally relevant so who for example has a distress thermometer which talks about the physical aspects the mental aspects the financial aspects the social aspects of a person's being which gives a fair assessment to understand and help you assess before the patient walks into you to know what is the level of distress he comes with which is beyond the disease beyond your tnm stage so a lot of this could actually help you in terms of putting a more focused efforts towards treatment in terms of elevating his mental physical social and psychological sufferings or uh, debilities which he is facing which he may not open to you in a small um, few minutes of your conversation in consultations so it's equally important to give emphasis towards uh, a medical social worker's jobs to create such a profile for each of these patients and plan and and kind of present this in a more articulate manner no data point in a patient's life when i say cross sectionally or longitudinally is irrelevant no data because each one of these data point is some way bringing you to a new learning and evolution to to maybe give a new discovery the collection of this data and the data reliability has been the factor and us investing in in data collection true and dr vishal one thing i do want to speak to you about is the trial this you know the smaller trial that we did using integrative therapies along with your patients to measure quality of life and various parameters in terms of their nutritional status physical and psychological what are some of the thoughts about that what did you experience um as a medical uh, doctor to see how your patients were actually improving over that time frame uh, and was there any kind of feedback from your patients that you know uh, negative or positive about incorporating these therapies into their treatment regimen see i think one of the most important learnings for me was that when you presented this data to us there was a lot of good science of collation of data you all collated the the efforts done the patient's feedbacks or their overall objective improvements and naturally their choices so what i realized was a lot of them wanted more choices many of the masters to give us more emphasis on programs like this that would actually give them a lot of um uh, personalized care at homes in their areas which i think was very relevant and and most importantly and distinctly what i remember is of one patient among all of those patients i, I don't remember many of them but i think that one patient who kind of really uh, uh, i think gave affirmation to my thinking was um me and dr shekhar patil were actually treating a patient who had an early voice box cancer early when i'm saying it was locally advanced stage 3 uh, but something that would not require a major surgery this patient however required chemo with radiation and um, considering his multiple comorbidities hypertension cardiac disease sugars um and arthritis and various issues he actually they dr patil told me vishal i think it better be withhold uh, 
chemo i don't know whether he'll be able to sustain it but that would reduce his chances of cure by one third and that was a discussion that we did with that family and we told them about how important we could look at working towards this with their consent involving a proper integrated approach to a holistic nutrition diet meditation yoga everything etc etc and all of this which all uh, 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 i think i've bundled up and uh, the the family was agreeing to take this risk on a more informed decision and said that we will uh, take up a comprehensive approach and we will go with the risk and dr patil also walked an extra mile and said that if they are willing i'll also start and see how he tolerates and then we can abruptly stop but we'll go weekly and we'll reassess um i remember the six weeks that he went on without a stop for me was a genuine uh, i would say uh, endorsement of the fact that we were able to make it to the finish in a meaningful way and even today when he walks into an opd with his arthritis limping but i feel happy and i said we optimized cure and care together you know and that i think is achievable through a, a joint holistic approach by which you add value to a person overall holistic treatment and reverse um, uh, some of the aspects which earlier we thought we would not be able to deal with now this means a more focused factory approach a more a dedicated approach where we build these kind of ecosystems and we are able to kind of uh, cater to the uh, to the patients in a more controlled manner in each uh, of these complicated scenarios each one i think is a unique case study i remember one of my patients coming and asking me why don't you offer past life regressions and i said oh, wow i said that's something that you know i've been uh, talking about and reading with brian bees and seeing all of this work and i had talked to a lot of hypnotherapists about what do they feel about their science in a more open way and i'm not saying i'm a, i'm an advocate of this but i'm i'm saying i'm an advocate of science and i'm open to discussion and i'm open to more debates and discussions and i would also want to keep a ear on my ground on what my patients want what is it that they are looking for and what are the answers they are kind of looking for so this i think journey has helped me open up my understanding into this area of things which are very simple sometimes at no cost or low cost and very meaningful to add uh, life into patients ears you know it, it's a lot of meaningful evolution there yes absolutely dr vishal i've taken a lot of your time but i'm not going to let you go without you answering one very very exciting question for me personally and i'm sure everyone would be interested uh just considering the the type of person and doctor you are what is the latest most exciting innovative um you know thing that you're working on right now if you can say so uh, i'm working on many innovations okay. working with the support of the state and the union government i'm working on various inventions i think uh, the moonshot that i'm currently working on is we recently published a paper um, which talks about physics in cancer and uh, this paper just recently got published uh, but uh, my moonshot was can we pick up the cancer at stage minus 1 not stage 0 stage 0 is pre malignant but stage minus 1 is if you can pick it up at electron level so this paper actually alludes to the role of organ 
pure organic chemistry and physics and its role in cancer uh, planning and detection uh, because i some way believe i'm i'm sorry but that biologists have been ruling this world for too long and uh, it's also time to create a little space for people with chemistry and uh, uh, with the uh, physics background and possibly mathematics and now i'm a member of the the mathematical oncology society and globally working towards some very innovative solutions where we feel that the fundamentals of biology are answered by chemistry whose answers lie hidden in physics and mathematics and quantum physics also has a lot of role to play in this especially quantum tunneling to look at how cancer metastasis happens and uh, i i'm hopefully planning hopefully few years from now to look at can we build uh, a ct scanner like a frisking machine that could actually pick up these cancers at stage minus 1 to a certain predictable level and the paper which is now internationally um, accepted in an index journal actually alludes to this topic of how we could reach here through an electronic electron tunneling mechanism wow. very logical but uh, i mean it's a moon shot but i thought you need to dream to reach there you know and then work towards it so worth making an effort towards uh, studying and seeing imagine if i want to know 10 years from now will i develop cancer and if somebody can tell me yes you know your left lower lung is vulnerable i think we have a starting point towards working in prevention wow absolutely that that will change the world um but we know that you are you are always doing these phenomenal things thank you so much dr vishal thank you thank so you. much for your time and i will be in touch as usual with you so thank you so much such a pleasure thank you thank you samara we hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful for yourself for more such episodes please subscribe to our youtube channel apple podcasts spotify and ep log media website where we dive deeper into the world of integrative oncology and healing cancer the right way